Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code boom to get $30 off your first month. That's boom. Talkspace.com slash boom. B-O-O-M. So many friends are getting engaged now, and I can't even decide what I want for dinner. You are locked on Fantasy Basketball, your daily podcast on fantasy basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd and as always you can find me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball. We are back with another podcast today of course. Um, yesterday did the auction mock draft, 14 team head-to-head auction mock draft. So if you are interested in seeing an auction mock draft happen as I'm commentating on it, Go back and check that podcast, either the audio version, which is uh, trimmed down a little bit in terms of length because I cut out all the dead air of me going, uh, 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 and, and uh, so all that's gone, so you can get a shorter version there, or you can watch the video, of course, on YouTube and see all the pics in action, the comments in the chat room, and how everything is actually going down there. So two ways to watch that auction mock draft also. What we're doing in today's podcast is fantasy basketball basics. I know that I've got lots of new followers this season, lots of people trying fantasy basketball for the first time, people who may have found the podcast halfway through last season and still aren't sure on many things regarding the game of fantasy basketball. Maybe you've been playing for a couple of years and you're still not sure of of numerous things. People ask me these sort of things uh, all the time, uh, questions. That, you know, they've been playing for two, three years, and they still don't understand everything. So I'm hopefully going to be able to cover everything, going from the very, very basics of the game to different types of settings and ways to set up. So if you are an experienced player, hey, you've downloaded the podcast, and that's fantastic. Maybe you want to listen just to get a refresher on things, but uh, it's, it is more geared to the people who are just sort of starting in fantasy basketball and want some advice and some uh, instruction on how how the game actually works and the best way to approach it. So I take no offense if you're an experienced seasoned seasoned fantasy basketball player and you go, you know what, Josh, I know what's going on. I don't need to hear your basics. Totally fine. Just download the show a few times to get the numbers up. That's all uh, all we're looking for here. So let's get into talking about the basics of fantasy basketball. Let's get to it. it. Marco Soares says, can I get a shout out? Well, Marco... Yes, you can. Not everyone's getting a shout-out, but Marco, you are watching live, so you can get a shout-out. So, shout-out to you, Marco. All right, so let's let's talk the basics of fantasy basketball, and I'm going to go real basic here. Um, this is for seasonal seasonal leagues, so what, when I mean by seasonal, I'm not talking daily fantasy. I'm not talking DFS. I will do a DFS, um, a DFS basic show later on, but not doing that in today's one. We're talking about seasonal leagues, so leagues that you draft your team before the season, and it plays out until some time in March or April. So that's what we're talking about here. So what does it mean, fantasy basketball? Many of you might have been coming across from fantasy football, and it is a similar uh, idea. So the idea is, at the start of the season, or whenever you get around to doing it, you get yourself a team of players. You get a group of mates, 10 people, 12 people in a league, 14 people, 20 people, 30 people. They can be friends that you know from home. They can be random people on the internet. They can be people that you've met through listening to this podcast. And you all go ahead and you choose a team of players. The players are exclusive to each team. If I choose James Harden, John can't choose James Harden. Matt can't choose James Harden. Kyle can't choose James Harden. And we go about doing that via a draft. And there's two ways of doing a draft. And that is a standard snake draft, which is what it's called, where everyone goes in order for the first round. So there's 12 teams. I pick first, Kyle picked second, Matt picks third, Greg picks fourth. And we go through up to pick 12. And then we get to the second round and the order reverses. So the person who picked 12th then picks first in the second round. The person who picked first in round one, they pick last in round two. So it's 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 snaking back and forth. We go up one end, the person at 12 then picks at 13, comes back the other way, and it's back and forward like that. So that's called a snake draft. So when you hear standard snake draft, that's what it means. 
The other way of doing it, like I did in the mock draft yesterday, is an auction. A player gets nominated, and all of the owners get a chance to bid on that player. You throw him out there for a dollar. Kyle throws five bucks on him. I throw seven. Matt throws 10, and then it's going, going, gone. You get that player. You have a budget normally of $200, but it could be 300 It could be 250 depending on how it's set up. And you acquire those players. So that's your first step in fantasy basketball, acquiring the players for your team. But but what, what, does, it, what does it do? Like what, what does getting these players mean? So if I want to go, and the way I'm trying to think of um, explaining this is if when someone says to me, Josh, yeah, what do you do? What's your job? I know you're not a pharmacist anymore. What's your job? And that's often with, uh, with, with people who are talking to, like if I'm talking to, um, I don't want to, I don't want to be too sexist, but if I'm talking to, to females, they don't know any idea what I'm talking about. Oh, I do fantasy basketball projections and analysis and podcasts. What's that? All right, so that's the question. So that's how I'm going to try and explain it. It's not an easy thing to explain. What is fantasy basketball? So the real-life performance of players, the real-life, what the players do in real life, you accumulate those stats for your fantasy team. You have selected players through one of those draft methods that we uh, that we talked about earlier on. You have those players in your team, and you acquire their stats. James Harden goes out there and scores 20 points. Your team gets 20 points. He goes and has 10 assists. Your team gets 10 assists. And you do that for the entirety of your lineup. In general, you will have active spots and bench spots. Most times, 10 active spots and 3 bench spots. Anybody in an active spot for that day, whatever they do on the basketball court, whether they get 6 blocks or 4 assists or hit 4 threes, you accumulate those stats for all 10 of those guys in your active spots. If they are on your bench, you don't get their numbers. Very similar to fantasy football, having those guys on your bench, they don't score. That's what happens in fantasy basketball. So you get all those things. And at the end of each day, this is for a category league. I'll talk about points leagues in a second for a category league, which I'll go through and explain that difference as well. So we count up. Harden had 20 points. Jamal Crawford had 10 points. Um, Who else have we got? I'm trying to think of random players' names. Taj Gibson had eight points. And we add it all up. We add up all of the... All of those points, and maybe for that day we had 120 points because we had seven active guys playing. We had 40 rebounds. We had 22 assists. We had seven steals and six blocks added up amongst that. So that's what I got for the day. My opponent has the same thing, and we look at how it compares. If I had 100 points and he had 80 points, that puts me in the lead in that points category. So therefore, I get a one. And this is in this is called head-to-head each category. I have a one. So I have I am in front in the points category. He got forty rebounds, I got thirty-seven rebounds. So he is he is in front in rebounds. So the matchup is one one. That's how that works. And we do this for seven days, for a seven day matchup. And all of those stats are accumulated and tallied over a seven day period and at the end we add it up. I had eight hundred and twenty four points, you had eight hundred and thirty points, you get the win in points. One nil to you. I had 400 rebounds, you had 320, I get one for a rebound. 1-1. One, one. And that's how you win in category leagues. You need to get more stats, of whatever stats they are, you need to get more of those in your opponent over a seven-day period. And then at the end of that week, I, I beat you, Marco, I beat you five categories to four. So I, my, my overall record is 5-4. The next week, I lose to Matt 3-6. So my overall record is 8-10. and 10, And that's how the, the numbers add up. Now, that's for a category league, the most common form of league. You either have eight category leagues or nine category leagues as the standard. Now, I have, I've had some crazy bastards messaging me. I'm in a 15 category league. You know what? That's terrible. I, no offense. I know it's, it gives me extra challenge. They are really bad, those extra leagues. And I'll talk about that in a sec. Eight categories. We're measuring points. We're measuring three-pointers made, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, field goal percentage, and free throw percentage. If you play in a nine-category league, the ninth category is usually turnovers, but there are multiple other categories that you can add in there. You can have offensive rebounds, defensive rebounds, two-point percentage, three-point percentage, double-doubles, triple-doubles, quadruple-doubles, ejections, personal fouls, technicals, team wins, um, true shooting percentage, assist to turnover ratio. You can have any different thing that you want to have pretty much depending on what site you're hosting the Fantasy Basketball League, whatever kind of category you want. But when I'm talking, I'm usually talking standard eight category 
leagues. That's the way that I like to speak about things. Now, that's what a category league is. The more simple version of fantasy basketball, which I am not a fan of at all, is a points league. And what that is, is that each statistical category that is scored in your league is equal to a point. Each point the player gets, you get one point. Harden scores 20 points, I get 20 points. It's one for one, which is going to be adjusted. Every assist is worth one and a half points. He gets 10 assists, that's 15 points for the day. Each block is worth three points. Serge Barker has five blocks, that's 15 points for the day. And overall in that game, Harden maybe had 30, 11, and 10 with two steals. So he racked up 67.2 points for the day. So he gets 67.2. And much like categories, everyone in those active spots, you just add them up for the day. Harden got 67, Abarka got 40, Norm Powell got 38. And you add them up and I say, I've got 400 for the day. My opponent's got 300. I'm winning, but we play it over a seven-day period. Who's got the most points? So it's not about categorical diversity. It's literally who is going to accumulate the most points. And this is why I don't talk points leagues too much because, again, it depends. What if your blocks are worth five points in your league and, 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 uh, and Marco's league, they're worth one point? Okay, Kevin, for the grand prize of $1 million, what color is the White House? Um, I know this, I know this, I know this. Um, five seconds. Oh, switching to Geico could save you a bunch of money on car insurance? Okay. Judges? That's true, Kevin. Bill Alone, congratulations. You're a winner. Woo! Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer. So me saying, Rudy Gobert, man, he's a first-round pick in points leagues. And Marco goes, well, hang on, because blocks are only worth one point. He's not worth shit because someone who scores 30 points gets 30 points. And someone, you know, Rudy blocks three shots, he gets three points. Nowhere near as valuable. So that's why there's too much variance. It is, And people go, oh, who's in a top five in a points league? I don't know, because I don't know what your scoring system is. But that's a points league. It's very similar to fantasy football where, you know, one point per rushing yard and PPR and touchdown bonuses and volume bonuses and all of those are all of those different things. That's what a points league is. Boring as shit, but I understand that people like that because they're transferring over from fantasy fo- football, but it's bad. It's really the worst way to play fantasy basketball. I couldn't uh, discourage it any higher. There's no strategy really in drafting, in trading, in waiver wire pickups. It all comes down to, well, is this guy going to average 30 or is this guy going to average 25? You know what? I'll have the 30-point 30, 30 guy. Very, very straightforward. Who gets more points? 30-point guy. Oh, done. Cool. And there's obviously a little bit more to it than that. Then, oh, is he injured? Is he going to lose his role? Is something? Yeah, all that sort of stuff happens. But in essence, it's boiled down to one to one uh, category, to one number. Um, Joshua Hay says, Josh, stop mansplaining to me. Oh, no, I, I do a pod, but seriously, like, um, yeah, people like ask me, like, the, you know, the, the, Maybe it's not females. It generally is though. And they're the people who ask me because, you know, that's they, they don't pay as... Hey, 98% of people listen to this podcast are male. So I, I understand. And shout out to all the female listeners. Love, love them. It, it's fantastic. And, and there's no reason why female people shouldn't... Or females shouldn't be getting involved in fantasy basketball. But the questions I have um, from people are always... are Always come from girls. Like, what the... What, <laughs> what do you actually do? What is your job? I've got no idea. Anyway, so that's... Uh, that's what that's what I'm looking at there. All right, so that's that's the basic categories versus points leagues. The next thing is daily changes versus weekly changes. You'll hear me mention that. A daily changes means that every single day you change your lineup. Harden plays four games this week. On the days he doesn't play, you move him to your bench and you put one of those guys from the bench into your active lineup. So every single day you need to change your lineup. Weekly at the start of the week, you set it. You've got your 10 active spots, your three bench guys. Who plays four games? Who plays three games? Is this guy injured and might sit out too? Does he need to go to the bench? You need to make your lineup decisions that way. I'm not a massive fan of weekly leagues in general. They can be good in certain search situations. Um, obviously, they require less effort, more decision on, a, say, a Sunday night or Monday morning to make that lineup choice. But when someone gets injured during the week, you're in a fair bit of trouble. So I really I really hate them for head-to-head leagues. I'm totally fine with them for roto leagues because we're playing the long game, which we'll get into a little bit later. I'm fine with weekly uh, locks for roto leagues because if you miss like a game or two games, it all tends to even out. But in head-to-head, you miss two games during the week. That can cost you a whole matchup and that can be really impactful over the course of the season. So you know, I'm not a massive weekly lineup uh, fan. Now, the difference is now I want to get a little bit, um, a little bit more in-depth here 
is that if you're playing in a weekly changes league, you've got the ability to stash injured guys for longer. And the common sense is there, if I draft Isaiah Thomas, Zach Levine, Jabari Parker, someone I know who's injured, I don't have to rotate that position in every single day. I don't I don't have to do that. What I um what I can do is he can just literally sit in my bench until January. But in a daily changes league, I'm ro- I'm using all 13 active spots all the time. And that spot normally gets me three and a half games. Each each spot normally gets you three and a half games. So I've got someone sitting there that's injured. I am at a three and a half game disadvantage each week. But in a weekly changes league, he just sits on the bench along with the two other guys and it doesn't have an impact. Now it has an impact because you might have taken him a pick 40 and you've lost the opportunity to draft to opportunity costs. You've lost the opportunity to draft a player who's a top 40 player for the first three months of the season. And that's the issue. But during the season, it doesn't have, it doesn't have that much of an impact. You can hold those injured guys on your bench and it does change your strategy a little bit more. In a daily changes, if you don't have an injured reserve spot, which an injured reserve spot is someone who is designated out on ESPN or or, uh, IL on Yahoo, you can put them into this bonus roster spot and it doesn't count against your standard 13-man roster. And then you can go and pick up someone and add them in. Now, the thing is, once they come off that, uh, they're not injured anymore, you usually are prohibited from making any transactions. You can't drop guys, you can't alter your roster if there's an uninjured player in that injured spot. So you can't just keep someone there injured you know, for weeks and weeks and use it as just a 14th roster spot. So if you don't have an IR spot in a daily changes league, you have to make those decisions. If, say, in week three of the season, Russell Westbrook goes down for three months, knock on wood, and you don't have an injured spot and you're in a daily changes league, can you afford to hold on to him? Can you afford to be at a three to four game disadvantage every single week for three months? Because while that's great, he will come back and be really good in the fantasy playoffs. Will you be there losing, pretty much losing every single week by having a four game disadvantage? But in a weekly league, you just sit him on the bench and that those bench spots act as default injured reserve spots. The same thing in a rotisserie league. Which I will, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. Actually, let's talk about rotisserie leagues now. So we talked about, I was explaining category leagues at the start and saying how you know how you match up against your friend. Yeah, who's got the most points? They win a category. Who's got the most rebounds? They win a category. Rotisserie is different, and it's something where you're not battling one person every week. You are battling all players. So all twelve people in the league are against each other all season over a course of the 82 game season. So one common so what what you do is is that each it's the same sort of story you've got daily or weekly that that's still the same for roto. You accumulate stats in those 10 active spots. So Harden has his 30 points, he has his 10 rebounds. That's fine and we add that up. And then we compare it to everyone else. So say for that day I had 100 points and that was the fourth most points that anybody in this league got. It's a 12 team league. Well, for example, let's, no, let's say it's, I got the most. My 100 points for the day, I got 200 points for the day from all my players that played, had a huge day from gym, and I had um, someone else, Nikola Vucevic dropped 27. I had 200 points in total, right, for the day. The next highest guy had 180 for the day. So that means I've got the most in the points category. So there's 12 teams in this league. So in rotisserie scoring, I get 12 points. The person who came in second, it doesn't matter how far behind me they were. I could have scored 200 real-life points and they could have scored 100. But because they're second, they get 11 rotisserie points. The third team in rotisserie scoring, the the third team in points categories, gets 10 points and so on and so forth. And whoever has the lowest amount of points gets one point. And that happens across all categories. In the three-pointers, say I had the second lowest amount of threes for the day, I would get two points for that category rebounds, assists, it's all the same across the eight categories or nine categories or 15 categories or whatever bullshit setup you want to do. That's that's how we sort it out. And then that's all tallied up. So my 12 points for my three-pointers, uh, for my, my points category, two points for threes, and I add them all up. And whoever has the greatest total of points is on top of the standings. And each day this updates. And that's what rotisserie does. It goes over the entirety of the season you are building up those um, numbers. Um, and you know, you, once, when you, you, you build, you've got to build those categories and get yourself decent scores. Now, in order to win a rotisserie league, we're not looking at you know, battling back and forward against an opponent. 
It's the long haul. And this is why I say in a general standard rotisserie league, yeah, punting is not an option, which I'll talk about later. You you generally need, say it's a eight-category league with 12 people in it, you need about 70 to 75 total points to win a league. And that's an average of about nine to 10 in each category. Nine, nine and a half in each category. So you need to be in the top three or four pretty much of every category. Now, obviously, you could be first in six categories and be sixth in a couple of others. But if you start coming in as last, as second last, when you're getting one or two points, it makes it really, really difficult to then get enough points to get to that 74 margin. Now, you could be you have a one in one category, and as I said, we're looking at an average of nine points per category. So you get a one in that category. It means you've got to catch up eight, eight points across the other seven categories. So meaning instead of having an average of nine in those categories, you've got to average at least 10 in those categories, 10 and a bit, a little bit more than 10 in those other seven categories. And that makes it tougher. So instead of being top four, you've got to be top three in all those other ones. And, and that can be a tough challenge. That's why I'm not a massive fan of punting in, in those standard type roto leagues. But that's the basics of rotisserie scoring. You just compare yourself in every category. Do I have the most assists in the league? Total assists? Then I get 12 points. Or if it's a 20-team league, I get 20 points. If it's a 14-team league, I get 14 points. The second team gets 13. The third team gets 12. And it's all added up. That's rotisserie scoring. Now, in rotisserie, those active spots, there are games limits. So for your point guard spot, your shooting guard spot, you can play 82 games at each of these spots. So you don't rotate your bench in every single day. Because if you've got... Chris Paul as your starting point guard and he's in your point guard spot and your backup point guard on your bench is Paddy Mills. You want to get 82 games out of Chris Paul. You don't want to get 70 out of Paul and 12 out of Mills or 60 out of Paul and 22 out of Mills because we know that Chris Paul's games are better than Paddy Mills. So I leave my starters in. Now, when they get hurt, when they get hurt, they've missed that opportunity. So Chris Paul won't play 82 games. He might play 75. So I'll need seven replacement games from someone off the bench. But if I start rotating in early, so Paul plays on the first day and then he doesn't play on Wednesday, but Mills does. If I just swap them over straight away, oh, because Paul will miss games later on. How do you know how many games Chris Paul will miss? Maybe he misses one. Maybe he misses five. And you don't want to miss out on that. So I would rather leave them there, leave those guys in their spots, the best players in their spots. And then if they get injured and miss a game, then I know I've got, hey, I've got this game I can catch up. Let's make one move and and rotate this guy in. But I tend to do that a little bit later. So then again, at that later point in the season, I can see where I need to catch up. You know what? My rebounds really need some work. Who's a strong rebounding point guard? Maybe I add in someone like that um, to make up these bonus three games instead of getting eight rebounds from three games, I can get 15 rebounds. And maybe that helps me. So that's the way I like to do it. Very, very rarely am I changing a lineup in Roto, apart from a long. if I know there's a long-term injury. Um, Chris Middleton breaks his leg. He's out for four months. Well, you know what? I'll take him out of my starting shooting guard spot and I'll put someone else there straight away. But that's the way I like to approach it. But given those restrictions on games played in rotisserie leagues, You can use that bench like IR spots because you're not using them all the time. So you can put Isaiah Thomas there. You can put Zach Levine there. You can put Jabari Parker there if you want to. And they can sit there because you won't need to use them on a continual basis. Now, if your Roto League doesn't have games limits, you treat it like a daily changes head-to-head league. And having those guys there is really, really tough to do because you need to just get as many games in as possible. Yeah, just bulk streaming of games to get volume up. But in general, a good Roto League has a games limit there on it. Roster setup, different ways you can do it. You can go really non-specific and have guards, forwards, centers, and then some utilities, which means any position you want. You can go more specific, have two point guards, two shooting guards, two small forwards, two power forwards, two centers, and a couple of utilities. You can do a starting five, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center, and then do a nondescript guard, forward, and center with three utilities, which is the setup that I like the most. Yahoo has that setup of point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center. And then they have another center, a guard and a forward and only two utilities. I despise that setup completely. 
It is nonsensical to me to have two centers just completely bullshit. I'd rather have the one center and three utilities. That's the way that Yahoo default is, and it does put a premium on center players because um, you need to have two in your starting lineup at all times, and if you don't, you can be in a little bit of trouble. So that's something I don't really like with the way that Yahoo um, sets up that roster setup. But you can do it different ways. If you want to encourage um, uh, waiver wire streaming, you can... um, or not wait necessarily waiver wise for me. If you, you can make it so that you've got five starters and eight bench guys. And then you're a bit you want to concentrate your value in the top end of your roster. Because the bottom four guys, they're just not going to play on a general basis. They yeah, they play eighty two games for the season. You might use them ten times. It doesn't matter as much. So doing two for one type trades where you send your eighth and ninth best player to get your opposition's fifth best player definitely works out in your favor. So all these things come into consideration when talking about leagues and trades and ideas of things to do. It definitely it has an impact there. So you know, your your roster setup is important. 10-3 is the usual split. 10 starters, 3 bench, but do it any other way you want. And it does change your mindset in terms of drafting. If you've got a 10-3 setup, everyone's going to be used at all times. So all players are important. If you've got a 5-8 setup, the bottom four guys, they're just not going to play. So they are guys that you can literally just stash there. Hey, I'm waiting until um, Tyler Eulis gets a real shot in Phoenix if Eric Bledsoe gets traded. So I can keep him there. And you know what? I just won't have to use him very often. I can you know, be patient on a guy like De'Aaron Fox in Sacramento and put him down the bottom there and feel comfortable that I'm just not going to have to use him very much early on. Frank Nilakina, the same sort of story. So that's the other way that you can look at that. But that's that's the way you have know, setting up rosters. But standard is 10 starters, three bench, maybe you have four bench. I always like to put an injured reserve spot into my leagues. I don't want to be in that situation where I have to drop Kevin Durant or Russell Westbrook. I like to have an injured reserve spot, just one normally. Uh, that's That gives you enough scope between, hey, I'm not going to just lose all my best players, but I have to make some sort of decisions. I don't like having five injured reserve spots in a non-dynasty type format in a redraft. I want one. That's it. Lots of debate about the ninth category that we can use in fantasy. Turnovers is the standard, but I hate them. You know I hate turnovers, and I want to find a better option. In the Red Rock head-to-head leagues this season, we are splitting field goal percentage into two-point and three-point percentage, so we'll see how that goes. My other favorite option is to split rebounds into offensive rebounds and defensive rebounds. I like that as an option. The other ones that people use are ones that I don't like. Double-doubles. And I'll tell you why I don't like that. It is a very self-limiting stat. You can't stream anyone in. You can't add anyone who gives double-doubles because it requires people to get 10 rebounds or 10 assists. And the amount of people that can do that is very limited. So double-doubles are concentrated really, really very, very highly at the start of drafts. Cousins, Wall, Davis, Towns, these sort of guys. Hard and Westbrook. That's where the value is. Outside the top 60, you're finding two, three guys. Maybe they get a double-double occasionally. All your double-doubles are concentrated in the top 50. It's also a double-dip reward for points and rebounds. So I don't like that. Clearly, I like uh, triple-doubles less than that. Really hate that as a category. If you had Westbrook last year, you would dominate in that. I just hate that category. Free throws made is also a bad category in my opinion because, again, every time you make a free throw, what do you get? You get a point. So you get a point in the points column, and you get a free throw made in the free throws column. It's a it's a double dip. Now, I know that three-pointers made is also a double dip because each three you make, you get one in the three-pointers made column, and you get three in the points column, but it's a little bit different because it is a three-to-one ratio. But the one-to-one for free free throws made, I don't, not a big fan. Field goals made, similar story. I hate things like ejections. I hate uh, fouls. I hate technicals as well. I don't like these random... If, if, if I'm ever in a league or someone asks me a question, though, I'm going to leave that counts personal fouls, I just disregard it completely. Disregard text, disregard ejections, pay zero attention to them. I think drafting around those is really a poor, a poor way to go about it. Player acquisition during the season. Obviously, you can trade people. You trade two guys on your team for one player on another team. One guy on your team for two players on another team. But when we're talking about trades, and this goes for whenever you're asking me advice on all this sort of stuff as well. When you're talking about trades, it's important to know things. Because if I trade one of my guys for two of um, Marco's guys, then obviously I have to create a roster spot. So who am I dropping? 
Who is my worst player that is then going to get released on my team so I can accept their two guys? So in essence, every trade is a two-for-two trade. If I am trading two of my guys to get one of Marco's, I have an open roster spot. So who's the best player that's available on the waiver wire that I will add into that spot? When you get to deeper leagues, the waiver wire is a lot more barren. So the player that you're adding off the waiver wire, it might not be a player of the level of Nikola Mirotic, Willie Cauley-Stein, who legitimately, someone said to me yesterday, oh, I've got Chris Cauley-Stein and Mirotic available on the waiver wire. Who do I add? And I go, well, how is this possible? But it is possible. So in a 10-team league, you might find these guys with top 100 upside available. In a 16-team league, we're talking about guys like Jared Bayless, who is just not going to have as big an impact. So yeah, that makes a big difference. I'm trading away. Oh, yeah, I'm getting back Al Horford. Um, and then my other roster spot means that I have to add Timotelo Wawu Cabrero. And then, you know, and I'm giving up uh, Bob Carve and Jeremy Lin. Like, which one is better? And it makes a, it makes a big difference. League size makes a big difference in trades. So that's how you can acquire players. Now, with trades, I'll say this all the time. People trade because they like trading. It's the same reason why they have the trade machine and why people love the trade machine because they think that they can be a GM of an NBA team. They think they're a better GM than the GMs out there, and maybe some of them are. But they trade for the sake of trading. I'm telling you now, there are trades that have gone on. People have done their drafts and then trades go on straight after it, and nothing has changed from when you drafted. People draft players. I'll just draft him and trade him later. I don't like that mentality. Because if someone wanted that player at the time, they would have drafted him. That's People trade for the sake of trading. And in, in general, if you're trading for the sake of trading, you are losing the trades. I trade very infrequently. And I trade when it's a clear win for me. Or what I think is a clear win. I'm not doing it just because I love trading. Let's throw out a million offers and do all this. I draft very specifically to suit my team. And I'll, I'll make some deals, but not many. But there are people that... You might have 150 trades go down in one league, and it just it it so many of them are just are just trades for the sake of trading. So be really careful with your trades. Are you trading because you are making a clear clear upgrade, or because you just want to execute a trade? Oh, I drafted Kyrie at pick 12, and I've got a trade to get Lillard back. Like, why are you making that trade? Like, what? How is that actually benefiting your team? Is it changing anything? Now, you could say I drafted Kyrie at pick 12 and I'm trading him for Gobert because I want to really change the makeup of my team and I understand that. But it's got to be you've got to look at these trades as to how it um how it changes your team. It's really important. And this is something I mentioned the other day. When we're talking about trades, now overall value it's it it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. In a vacuum, it means nothing. I'm trading Julius Randle for Darren Collison. Who wins in a vacuum? No one, because you'll die in a vacuum. It doesn't mean anything. You are trading Randle's big rebound numbers for Collison's assist numbers. You might see the overall value favor Randall because he was drafted at 80 and Collison was drafted at 90. Oh, I got a win. I got Randall. But if that then makes you uncompetitive in assists and you were already the best team in rebounds, what's the point? You lost. So it is really important to analyze every single trade in respect to your roster. And you can look at the trade analyzer on Basketball Monster and it can give you your net gain and net value and all that sort of stuff. But even that... If you don't know how to interpret it, can be misleading. Oh, look at this. I got the most value out of this trade. But if that most value is in, if you're getting that value back in categories where you are uncompetitive and it still leaves you uncompetitive, it's pointless. If you are getting all that value back in a category where your team averages seven rebounds per player and the next highest is five, and then you add an extra uh, high rebounding guy and it takes you to 7.5 rebounds, sure, your value looks great, but it literally does nothing to change the value of your team or change the strength of your team. It changes nothing. You've gone from being the best rebounding team to being the best rebounding team. And in the process, you've gone from being the eighth best assist team to the or sorry, the, the, the third best assist team to the seventh best assist team. So you've lost, even though your overall value is better. 
So that's why it is really important when you're looking at the trade analyzer on Basketball Monster. So don't look at overall value. Look at what happens in the categories. How are those categories, and how does that affect the projected standings? Oh, I've lost a lot of field goal percentage here. I've gained a lot of free throw percentage, but how does that help me? Does it help me against the top teams in the league? What does it do to the strength of my team? Does it change the overall makeup? And I had that example the other day talking about someone wanting to trade DeAndre Jordan and their overall value coming back was fine, but it made them mediocre in more categories. Instead of strong in six, it made them mediocre in five and yeah, below average in two. And yeah, the overall value was fine, but it took away their strengths in a head-to-head format. So you really do need to dig into these trades. Don't accept them because you like trades. Don't offer them because you like trades. Offer them because they make you better. And making you better is a real specific thing. The other way to acquire players is add them off the waiver wire. So you've got your players and everyone that's not owned by a player or by a fantasy manager is sitting on the waiver wire on free agency. Now, there's two ways of doing this. There's a first come, first serve basis, meaning you see a guy there, you click add, you add him. Or there's something called the free agent acquisition budget, which is FAB, F-A-A-B, which is the method I prefer. We'll talk about just the first come, first serve method. Players who are sitting out there, you just go click add, you drop your player, and you add him to your team. Now, when that player gets dropped from your team, they go onto something called the waiver wire, and the length that they're on the waiver wire differs. It could be two days, it could be three days, that can be preset in your settings. But the player that gets dropped onto the waiver wire can't just be automatically added to a team. They have to sit on waivers, and then there is a priority. Normally, it's the worst team that gets the priority to grab those guys off waivers when that process is after two days. And you can put in your claim for it, and after that two-day waiver process goes through, if you've got the first priority or the highest priority of players that claimed him, you get that player. You can't just go in and click it and add him. And there, so that time frame varies. And it will say, yeah, he goes off waivers at 3 a.m. Wednesday. So you put your claim in and you wait to see if you get him, depending on if you had third waiver priority, did the guys at one and two yeah, make that claim. Now, people will often ask me, is it worth burning waiver wire one priority or waiver wire two priority and getting this player? I pay absolutely no attention to that because the the likelihood of you getting a high-impact player early in the season off waivers is so much higher than what it is later in the season. It can happen. But panic moves happen early in the season. People drop players that they shouldn't drop. So getting those guys early. When later in the season, when someone you know starts blowing up, it's because of an injury, because of a trade, because of a rest period. And you can just add that guy a free agency. It hasn't been someone that a player has dropped, usually. So you can just go and grab that guy. But at the start of the season, a panic move will be made. Lonzo Ball will score four points and have two assists in his first game. And some dickhead in some league somewhere will drop him. So using your waiver priority, just use it. I, you can just sit there going, no, I'm just going to hold on to it, just going to hold on to it, just going to hold because that's, that's fine. But later in the season when Brooke Lopez gets hurt and Andrew Bogut's gets out and if it's a Zubats is starting and playing 30 minutes a night for the Lakers, you don't need to use your waiver priority on him because he's going to be sitting there as a free agent. So you just grab him, you just add him. So waiver wire priority becomes significantly less important later in the season. So I have I place zero importance on holding on to my waiver wire priority. Daddy, where do babies come from? Uh, well, uh... Honey? Mommy went to the store. Oh, well, you see, um... Well, there's a mommy and a daddy, right? Right. And see, when they call Geico, uh, they could save a bunch of money on car insurance. Oh, really? And that makes them happy? Yes, that makes them very happy. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could have this talk, sunshine. (laughs) Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Fab system. Every player is is on a waiver type system, right? You, You can't just go and add anyone for free. You can't just go and add them without any repercussions. Each day, there's an auction on players. I want to go and add the blue swimmer, Alan Crabb. So I go and click add on him. It will say, what is your bid? You are normally given $100 and the minimum bid is either zero or $1. I like to do $0 minimum bids because I don't like to put a restriction on the amount of additions you can make during the season. And if you do as a minimum of $1, that means you are limiting yourself to a maximum of 100 transactions for the year. So I do a minimum of zero. So I go into Alan Crabb and go, I want to add him. What's my bid? Hmm. Do I throw $4 on him? 
Is he worth $4? Is he worth $5? And that's an added element of strategy. And then when the time processes at 4 a.m. in the morning, the software goes through and says, well, Josh put $4 on the blue swimmer. Matt put $5 on him. And Kyle put $7 on him. So Kyle gets him. I think it's the fairest way of doing free agent acquisition. Not everyone can be in front of their computer or watching their fantasy team 24 hours a day. So when um, when Ricky Rubio gets injured, we can't all rush and grab Dante Exum. We can look at the news and go, oh, Rubio went down for two months. Exum's going to be the starting point guard or Donovan Mitchell. Um, time for us to add him. And then the strategies. Who's, oh, should I bid 10 bucks? Is he worth 20? How do I do it? That is by far the fairest way of acquiring players. And it is something that you should definitely include in your league. I love it. The other part that you should do in setting up your league is weekly acquisition limits. How many moves you can make for the week. Four or five is ideal to me. You can be more harsh and go to three, but that's you can only make that amount of moves during the week. So you can't do something called streaming, which is just constantly at the bottom of your roster, dropping two players every day and adding two players who are playing that day and getting yourself five, six, seven extra games for the week. Now, your opponent can obviously do that as well, but I'm not a fan of just unlimited streaming. Streaming is important and getting those guys and maximizing your games is fine, but there needs to be some sort of limit. So a weekly acquisition limit is a good way to do it or a games played limit, which you can access on ESPN and Fantrax, but Yahoo, unfortunately, doesn't think that that's a priority for them. And part of the reason why I think they are the worst site to host fantasy leagues, and I've said that plenty of times, they just have very limited options in terms of what you can do. So I think the games limits are good and weekly acquisition limits are quite good options as well. Um, let's talk punting. Punting to me is a head-to-head league thing. It's got nothing to do with points leagues. There's no punting in points leagues. If you're in points leagues, who has the most points? That's it. But what punting means is when you're looking at your team strength in your eight-category league, your nine-category league, your 15-category league, you are disregarding a category. You are not paying attention to that category. The common misconception is, is that you are deliberately being bad in a category. That is not what punting means at all. So in our standard eight categories situation, I might decide I am punting free throws, meaning I am not aiming to be competitive in this category. If I am competitive, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. If I'm competitive in it, whatever, but I am paying zero attention to it. So therefore, players like Andre Drummond, DeAndre Jordan, Dwight Howard, Clint Capella, Yusuf Nurkic, Rudy Gobert, to a lesser extent, Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, they gain value because you don't have to worry, well, you know, they're going to hurt my free throw percentage because you don't care. Now, the, again, the common misconception is, is you know, punting strategies is pretty hard. It uh, restricts what you can do. Um, what if someone else punts free throws and I can't get Drummond? Doesn't matter. You don't want to make your free throw percentage the worst. That's not what you're trying to do. You are trying to make your other seven categories stronger. You might be punting free throw percentage and assists. You are trying to make your other six categories stronger. If someone else grabs a bad free throw shooter, it doesn't mean, oh, I couldn't get three bad free throw shooters. I I can't punt anymore. Absolute bullshit. It's not how it works. You are disregarding categories to strengthen the others. You are playing in a pseudo six-category league or seven-category league or five-category league. You are not caring about those others. Sometimes you'll win them, but that's not where you're focusing your assets. You are trying to make yourself unbeatable in those other areas so that if you have an injury, if you have one of your guys go down, if you are at a games played disadvantage during the week, you are that strong in rebounds, like the example I gave before where your team averages seven per player and the next highest is five. If one of your high rebounders misses the week, you've got a massive buffer and you still win that category. You do in points or whatever, whatever category it is. It's just being that strong that you can withstand an injury to a degree. You can withstand a game's played deficit. You can, ex- you can withstand a poor week by one of your guys because you have concentrated your value into smaller categories rather than trying to spread the value out over eight or nine categories. I'm a massive fan. Now, you can win without punting. You can go balanced and have your team be average in every category or marginally above average, like you're attempting a rotisserie league. But if someone comes in with an aggress- super aggressive punt and is really strong in five categories and you're average in 
five or you're averaging all of them, then you, you are at risk. Now that the person punting is also at risk because if you have a bad, really, really bad day in one of those categories and that average guy beats you, that's fine. But again, the idea of punting is not to be bad in a category. That's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to be bad. So if I'm punting free throws, Ricky Rubio is a fine guy to add, even though he shoots 88%. Jamal Murray, beautiful add. I added him in a punt free throw percentage build. He shoots 90% from the free throw line. But Josh, why would you add a high free throw percentage guy? Because I want these threes, I want his scoring, I want some assists as a point guard position. Marcus Smart, 84% free throw shooter. Love him for punt free throws because my field goal percentage is sitting at like you know 54%, so I can absorb his poor shooting, but he gives me assists and steals and rebounds and helps me in those other areas that I need. And I don't care that he's a good free throw shooter. It just totally disregard it. That's what punting is. In rotisserie leagues, as I mentioned, it can be tough, but there are a few caveats to that. If your league is deeper, if you play 16 teams in Roto, where the top guys get 16 points and then 15 and 14, it's really tough to be right up there at the top end. It won't be 14 points per category average that you'll need to win in a deeper league like that. It just won't be. It might be 10 and so therefore, you can afford to punt a category and become stronger and get 13s and 14s in four categories. You can do that. The more categories you have, if you play a 12-category league, you can afford to punt one or two. In fact, you almost have to because being able to be top three or four in 12 categories is virtually impossible. So you might need to disregard one of them or two of them and focus on the other nine or 10. So that's when you can punt uh, in Roto. The more competitive the league the easier it is to punt as well in Roto. If it's uncompetitive and there are three teams who have stopped paying attention and they've dropped down to the bottom of the standings, then it is harder to punt and be competitive because you might punt a category and actually still be below those guys. Whereas in every other category, they just form the bottom. So the artificial basement of value in a rotisserie category becomes five instead of one. And the, the ability for you to get back there is a lot harder. Talked about this in auction drafts yesterday. So if you want to go back and listen to the start, you can listen to that. But I like going for a balanced approach. I don't like spending all my money on top class players. I'd rather get 10 top 80 guys than two top 10 players and then fill out the rest with top one, you know, guys outside the top 100. And the deeper, the deeper your auction draft goes, the more important that strategy is to me. But again, if you're playing in a league with five active spots and eight bench guys, then getting the high-end talent is more important because the back of your bench is not playing. So it does change your strategy there, definitely. When you're doing a snake draft, you need to, I believe, in the last two to three rounds, I don't care if a guy is guaranteed to be a top 120 player in those rounds. I want to take a flyer on one of these players and hope they can become a top 70 guy. So who's got upside? Who can surprise? Because without fail you will turn over at least 30% of your fantasy roster during the season, and that's probably a conservative estimate. So those guys you pick with the last picks, they'll get dropped. If they don't perform, they're gone. So you, you take a fly and go, and in the first two weeks of the season, there'll be someone who comes out and surprises everyone. You go, shit, look at this guy. Hey, I've got him, and he's turning in top 100 numbers. That's great. Let's hold on to him. This guy, I thought he'd play. I thought, um, thought Kent Bazemore would have a big start to the season. Turns out he's playing behind DeAndre Bembry now. Well, he's gone. See you later. Didn't work out. But if it did work out, maybe he'd be a top 75 guy. Maybe. And that's what you want to do with those late picks. Let's have a look at the uh, questions that some of you guys asked me regarding um, regarding basics in fantasy basketball. Um, Ruben Shamehorn says, I'd like a rubric for correctly grading preseason performance. I'd love one too. It's almost impossible. It's all about context and rotations and hearing what the coach says. But you know, things like we see Dwayne Dedman taking some threes. I pay a little bit of attention to that. Blake Griffin taking a ton of threes. I pay attention to that. He did that over the end of last season. Um, interesting to see when the Nets play, if Tim Mozgov starts taking threes. Like that will be important. You know, Milos Teodosic coming in quite early for the Clippers was important to me. Um you know, getting those eight assists didn't do much offensively, but he was a big part of the rotation. Where's Johnson playing ahead of Sam Decker? Yeah, that's something to pay attention to for deep leagues. Um, where are we? 
any other questions? I've talked about the difference between um, Roto and head-to-head. Okay, Chad Drew says, what's the drafting difference in head-to-head versus Roto? Okay, so when we're looking at uh, that, and I talked about not punting generally in Roto, so you want to avoid players who have significant deficiencies, especially in the percentages. So really, really poor free throw shooters, Gobert, Drummond, Jordan, Howard, Nurkic, um, they're hard to deal with because then you need to concentrate so much attention in that free throw percentage category in order to get it back to being just average and it can be at the detriment of other categories. Field goal percentage. Russell Westbrook, really tough one to come back from given his volume. Dame Lillard, that can be a, a challenge as well. So when you're looking at basketball monster projections, you want to see if less of the dark red if you have a player like a Nicola Batum, he's a more valuable rotisserie guy. Markeith Morris, the same, because they are just about average in every category. Now, obviously, if they were strong in categories, it's even better. But you don't want guys with massive deficits in categories, in rotor leagues. In head-to-head leagues, I encourage it. I want the strong performances. I want the big, big positives, and I'm okay with the big negatives, as long as the big negatives make sense on my team and with who else I've drafted. Path Patel says, what punting strategy works best? Depends. You can do whatever you want. It's always dependent on what you do in the first round. I wouldn't go into a first round saying, I am punting this, therefore, I'm punting free throws, therefore, I'm taking LeBron at four. It doesn't make sense to me. Take the best players in the first round and build your strategy from there. What strategy works best? The one that you execute the best. There is no best strategy. I am liking punt assist a little bit more this year, going real hard on big men early, but another good one I like is field goal percentage and field goal percentage and blocks together. And getting those inefficient guys and not worrying about the field goal percentage of them. I think that's fine. Um, a common question that I get all the time is who do I draft first? I'm picking pick three. I'm picking first overall. And this season in particular, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. This decision is not influencing whether you win your league. Whether you take Giannis, whether you take Harden, whether you take Westbrook or Durant or Towns, even though his playoffs might be not ideal for you in head-to-head leagues. It doesn't matter. In their top six guys, they're fairly interchangeable. If you took Curry at one, I'd say, I probably wouldn't, but whatever, that's fine. If you took Giannis, Towns, Harden, Westbrook, Durant, any of those are viable number one players. You want to take Davis at one, go overhead. Any of those guys are fine. It's not making a difference. The other question I get all the time is, can you go through the ideal pairing for everyone in the first round? Or who who do you pair with these guys at these picks? And it's really, really impossible to tell. Not that it's impossible to tell who you should pair, but who is going to be available for you to pair with them. And to a lesser degree, who you get in the second round is not that important either. Get guys that make sense. you Harden and Gobert, Kawhi and Gobert, probably not. That make the, making that much sense given the strength in free throws and Gobert's deficiency, you put yourself to being below average in that category. It's maybe not a good idea, but it can work. There's not necessarily ideal pairing. The way you win your draft is in rounds four through nine, I believe. So it's not it's not about getting best player available in round two. I don't believe in best player available at all outside of the first round. I don't believe in it at all. I'll just draft the best player available and trade him later. Don't believe in that whatsoever. I need who fits. I need to look at statistical scarcity. You know, points are the very are the hardest category to get. So if someone is, is in a similar range, whoever's the highest scorer there, I will generally take it unless I'm punting the points category. I just want guys that make sense together. But in general, there's numerous options. Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, and John Wall. They're all ranked like almost identical to me between 12 and uh, 15 or whatever it is. Who you take there doesn't make a massive difference. It can make a difference. Paul scores less points. Lillard is less efficient. Kyrie has lower assists. Lillard has low steals. John Wall has a lower free throw percentage. And it all, it, yeah, who you take there, it's not a solid ranking. It sort of it depends on who you took in that first round. But the real important stuff comes in what you do in round four through 10 or four through nine. Are you grabbing the right guys to fill out what strengths you need? Are you paying attention to what categories become harder to get later on, like points, like assists, like free throw percentage, the categories that are hard to influence later in drafts? Have you built those up correctly early on? Do you, Does your team just look, oh, I have just got a stack of point scorers, that's fine, then I'll just grab my specialists later on. 
I'll grab my high steals guys. So you know, when I'm looking at all of this, you know, pairings, ideal pairings with my top three, but it's, you're never going to get your ideal pairing for a start because someone's going to go off script and grab someone else. You just have to know how it all works together. But the important thing is after that, grabbing guys and don't be afraid to to make a reach. It's not really a reach. You know, round it earlier. If it fits what you need, do it. doesn't matter. Fit is more important than overall value in fantasy basketball to me. Um, who else have we got? Hayden. Hayden, you don't have to tell me how to pronounce your name. Hayden Dewar. Which players do you find yourself drafting the most thus far this season? Um, that's a good question. I don't. I can't really think of anyone who's who's standing out as being a, a repeat guy for me. I'm a, I'm a big Aaron Gordon guy. Um, I get him quite a bit late in drafts. Jeremy Lin's a guy that I'm after, but I'm drafting against people who listen to this podcast a lot of the time. So they're taking these guys much earlier. So there's no one that I really look and go, I'm getting this guy. And I, you should never have that. I don't think you should ever have that thought process. I have to get Gary Harris. Have to get him. I think it's a, a way to lose. Because you just say, I have to get him. Have to get him. Have to get him. You have to you have to get the stats. But you know, going too early on these guys, because you have to have this player, there's no such thing to me as a must-own player that you have to draft player. And there's no such thing as a player that you don't draft. Never drafting this guy because it's all about spots and values and team builds and where they all um, where they all sit. And Rob says the same thing. What two or three guys will consistently be on your team? No one. I don't. I don't, I don't work that way. Um, Grant Butler says, should you draft best available player or position you need? Said that already. Best player available after the first round is bullshit, in my opinion. Sahadid Muhammad says. Talk about prioritizing category, which cats are harder to come by late in drafts. As I mentioned, points are the ones, and people will say, oh, you can get points off the wave, or you can't. It is, it is, you can get points. You can get 10 point per game scorers, but you can't get points to make a dent in the points category. Getting high point scorers, they are all in the top 50. Out of the top 50 projected point scorers for me this season, nine of them fall outside the top 50 of fantasy ranks. For every other category is at least 17 that falls outside the top 50. Double. So you can find high threes guys, field goal percentage, free throws, assists, blocks, rebounds. You can find those guys outside the top 50 with points. It's hard to do. And that's why using draft track on basketball monster is important because it shows you as each player goes off what the scarcity looks like. The redder it is, the harder that category is becoming to find. The greener it is, it's easier. And you can use that as a priority. Um, I think that might be just about it. Ben Sample says, tell them that points aren't the most important category. Ben, that's an interesting point. Pun unintended. Because people do value points a lot. Oh, points, points, points. And the other categories are, are important. Getting those steals and getting a three-steal game guy is really important. But if you don't get points early on, you're not competing in points. It's as simple as that. If you don't get high scorers early, if you get Draymond in the second round and and um, you get another low points guy who I can't think of off the top of my head, maybe a Gobert or you get Chrissy Paul at the end of the first round, you're not competing in points. It's as simple as that. So points aren't the most important category. And people overrate points when looking at fantasy value of players and in trades especially. But if you don't get points early, you're not competing in it. Simple. Um, I reckon we might be uh, done for this podcast. I hope you guys that are new to fantasy basketball found some interest in this. Um, if there's anything that I didn't explain properly or explain fully, let me know and I will get back to you about that. But hopefully that provided some level of... um some level of um, knowledge and clarity in terms of explaining the basics of fantasy basketball. I went into a few more advanced sort of strategies and thought process, but hopefully that's enough. And if you've been listening to this podcast continually, I drop these things in shows all the time. Just try to condense them here into one podcast. So if you did enjoy it, or if you want more clarification on things, please let me know. 
Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher, and of course, now on Spotify. And if you leave a five-star review, that would be absolutely fantastic. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya. Frank Kaminsky.